name is Marcos Melitzas. I am here with Carrie Ellevelt. Welcome to our weekly show about politics, Daily Kelsey's Debrief. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking to Chuck Todd of MSNBC and NBC about the effect of Trump on the media, how the media evolved over the uh, four years of the Trump presidency. We're also going to be talking to Dave Newark. He's a Daily Coast staff writer and one of the nation's foremost authorities on uh, the militia white radical movement. And obviously that's relevant, not just because of the assault on the Capitol, but because of that ongoing threat today, tomorrow, and into the foreseeable future. And, and Carrie, it seems that even Republicans are starting to get a little freaked out about this movement. Is that right? I I think so. And, you know, I, I don't take any glee in it because there's a there's a real problem, you know, it, sur- surfacing with the white supremacy and white nationalists and these sort of like ex- these, uh, you know, radically sort of right wing extreme groups. But suddenly, you know, you've got McCon- Mitch McConnell goes to the Senate floor today and says, uh, the mob was fed lies. Who fed the mob? You know, who fed the mob lies? I mean, he said specifically they were provoked by the president and other powerful people, but he like made a distinct break today with Trump. And on top of that, you have this audio that was leaked today from House leader, House GOP leader, Kevin McCarthy, where he, he explicitly tells his caucus not to invoke uh, the the names of other members during their broadcast appearances, TV, radio, Even whatever. Democrats, right? He's saying Even don't Democrat. even Democrats. And he said, he said, Republicans, Democrats, or even anyone who isn't a member of Congress, just don't say their names. And he said, you know, I get these briefings every week and I've never seen anything like what I'm getting right now. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. And, you know, it seems to me that that audio was leaked for a reason. And those reasons could be multiple. But one of them could be, of course, that that these threats are serious and they're trying to make a serious effort now to tamp them down. But the other one is to help limit his own liability in terms of what might come out related to this insurrection, who stoked it, who's responsible, who who collaborated. And I think he, you know, I think that the Republicans now want to be on record saying, you know, I wasn't a part of this and I tried to tamp it down. Yeah, I'm not complaining. I, I think no, this is actually no. a real serious, great threat to our nation. And this is not being sarcastic. We're not being facetious here. This is actually something that, a lot of different institutions in our country bear a responsibility for for uh, for helping to stoke it, but also are now part of the solution, whether that's deplatforming off of social media companies or even the, the, the traditional media outlets. And, and so I think that's a good segue, Carrie, to introduce our first guest. He is Chuck Todd. He is the political director at NBC News. He's a moderator of Meet the Press and host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC. He's getting ready for tomorrow's big inaugural coverage. And he's joining us here for uh, for a little bit of time to talk about the media and how it has evolved these last few years. So, Chuck, such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Hey, man, you've uh, you've you've been a, a wonderful guest for me so many times. I think uh, it's time to pay it forward. Right. Or pay it back. 
Yeah, no, this is absolutely great. And it is really a little bit weird to have that sort of reverse roles, but I'm, I'm kind of digging it. I gotta admit, I'm kind of digging it. So, well, I'll let you know if I dig it in about 20 minutes. But <laughs> no, you, you know what? The internet might, might let us know whether or not they dig uh, it in about 20 minutes. God, God love the internet. The internet. Oh, lovely. No. Everybody. Everybody's a everybody, critic. Everybody is everybody. a critic. So sort of the first question is there, there was a clear evolution in how the media covered the uh, the Trump administration and the Republican Party and the Republican movement in general over the, fir- over the four years of the Trump administration. It really sort of kind of came to a head late last year. And, and in the Daily Coast post that I, that I wrote to promote this segment, I actually pulled a clip of you and Ron Johnson, where you just sort of seem to have completely have lost it and, and said, mm-hmm. stop trying to make Donald Trump happy, answer the question I am asking. So uh, how do you, from the inside, having lived that, how, do you, how, that, how did that evolution happen? And do you think it was good yeah. for American people? Look, that's the question I don't know the answer to, Marcos. And I say this, um, I think we, there was no rule book, right? What, what it is that we're supposed to do. And, and look, I'm not going to, you know, I've always viewed Meet the Press that I'm a custodian, right? And there's this heavy history with it, right? So it sits there. So I'll be honest, the last thing I want to do is get in arguments with anybody on air, right? I, I've always thought, and, and I hate this word, I was described at it and I hated it when it happened, but I actually respect why the description was used, that we're sort of considered a bit erudite, right? Okay. And in some ways, fine. That's the Sunday shows. And there is not, this is not to say that, that at its best, it should be, right? That's okay. It should be accessible. But yeah, you hope and it's, you know, that you have a whole bunch of smart people explaining, you know, why they support X or why they support Y. Look, Donald Trump turned this all into a contact sport to the to a point of absurdity, right? And we, in hindsight, I, we can all talk about this evolution. I tried this last Sunday, just on the violence. You know, imagine had we reacted another way after Gabby Giffords got shot, hmm. right? And And so, you know, in hindsight, we shouldn't have accepted this premise that this was a one-off, isolated incident. Um, this isn't the start of something. Well, now, when you look at it over a 10-year period, this was the beginning. And we had a crossroads. And, and, and it looks like the Republican Party took the other road. And so I don't want to sit here and say there was just a moment. You know, it's sort of like I used to joke, you know, I, I want to have my Samuel L. Jackson snakes on a plane moment. You know, <laughs> enough is enough. I just want off this goddamn effing this, you know, right? tired of this, you know, this effing lies and this effing plane and blah, blah, blah. And so here was the double-edged sword with it. And I don't know, I think that tactic, while I was uncomfortable, I think the viewers were uncomfortable. It chased a lot of Republicans off of television from talk, from, from doing this anymore. So in that sense, I felt as if, okay, that is why we have to do this every once in a while. You have to make this unacceptable. That moment right. in particular, Chuck, you're saying you got. I, what I would say is, if you recall, there's sort of during the Ukraine debate, I had three different Republican senators who went on, the, came on, and almost, and, and the last one came on on purpose trying to pick a fight and raise money off of it, and that was Ted Cruz. And, 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 oh, oh, I, I will, it, it, you know, but anyway, I had, if you recall, I had John Kennedy, Ron Johnson, and, and Ted Cruz. It was sort of like bing, bing, bing. And it was within, I would say, three out of six weeks. And they kept trying to go down this road. And I just got very, obviously, I got 
very aggressive in ways that people hadn't been used to seeing me do it. And I'm not going to, we can, we can debate about whether I should have done it sooner or not. I, I, I am, trust me, I, I am comfortable getting critiqued and I question my own actions a lot, but I actually think that it, it cowed these folks from at least attempting to spread this crap on mainstream. Mm -hmm. However, it did send them all to Fox business and Fox. And then of course that was, that was back when, remember in the, in, in the good old days of 2019, when, Newsmax and OANN were a little too much for the Republicans, right? No, no, but I'm for, for the Ron Johnsons of the world. Yeah, right. And and so, I look, whether it was healthy or not, and this is a question I have, it scared a whole bunch of Republicans from even coming on air. And it wasn't just our, my show. It was just all the sun, all the mainstream Sunday shows, right? Jake Tapper and I talk about this. Margaret Brennan and I talk about it. You know, Chris Wallace would have a little more luck getting them, but even he wasn't getting that many of the, of sort of, you know, and these folks just decided to hide because they were afraid of admitting we know what it is, right? They don't want the base to know they don't buy into the crap they've been selling them. Sure. But, but Ron Johnson, John Kennedy and Ted Cruz did for some reason. And, you know, the, the Ron Johnson one, by the way, is, is still something that it's one of the great riddles of the United States Senate. Ask any Senator that's been there longer than six years and they will just sit there and say, we don't know what happened to this guy. You know, all the other ones that went down this road, Ted Cruz, there's a, you see what he's up to, right? He talk about a guy who is totally, he has tried to politically play the angles of the Trump era, right? And he's missed it every time. Had he had it, and it's proof he has no principles. Because if he had a principle, imagine Ted Cruz having never changed his political profile from that convention speech in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like that, That you know, it, so, it, it, you know, but the point is, is that we now learn the guy goes from calling him a pathological liar to being the victim of one of the worst fake news trashings we've seen to then doing his bidding four years later. It's right. the, of all the transformations, it's among the most remarkable, but weirdly enough, it actually fits his, he's always made political decisions. Right. You can tell it's always like, what what will help me in the moment? And it's he always, thought, right. He thought in 2016, Trump was going to lose. Let me ask you something as so, we, you know, looking back, there's there's reflecting on what happened. But going forward, so Trump's going to be gone out of office, you yeah. know, fingers crossed. We're still trying to get it through uh, the 24 hour period here. Yeah, but um, ask me again at 1201. I was just doing some parent teacher conferences today with, you know, it's very convenient for the schools to do it today for everybody except people like us, right? Yeah. And all any of the teachers were like, is it 12 o'clock yet? Is it 12 o'clock <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, so Trump's going to be gone, but, but Republicans, obviously, Republican lawmakers are still going to be there, many of mm -hmm. whom underwrote all the lies that Trump told. And so right. I, I do wonder if you know, Washington journalists should start to reevaluate re how they approach and cover Republicans moving forward. And because because let me just say, let me just say oh. the assumption has always been as a Washington journalist. And I used to be one that yeah. when you're covering people on the Hill, everyone's moving within a similar framework of trying to get ahead in representative democracy. Right. Trying to yeah. Yeah. gain a political edge so that you can mm -hmm. get rid of 
elected, win the next election, become the majority, et cetera. And what we now know is Trump unequivocally proved that he didn't necessarily want to be, you know, need to be reelected. He just wanted to be president for life, as he put it. And 147 House Republicans and Senate Republicans signed on to that vision, even after the storming of the Capitol. They didn't care that there was no evidence of fraud. They objected to the, you know, to the results. So I just wonder, like, it, should Washington journalists be reevaluating how they're approaching these Republic- yeah. Republicans in particular? And it's not a small group. No, it's not. Uh, look, I, I I will say something here. I, I there is no I've always said this. There are people that I'm going to tell you I never want to have. I'm never going to have a meet the press, but I will never say they're banned because you just never know when you need to have somebody on for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So I'm always careful not to do that. And frankly, I don't want to give somebody the satisfaction to raise money off of it or to try sure. to have a grievance. You know what I mean? We all know. I mean, I've seen some of my buddies at other news organizations. When you single people out individually, you're actually handing them a fundraising tool. And I'm not interested in, in helping on that front. But I think you have to. I will tell you this. I do not think anybody that was a seditionist has a role in the democracy right now. OK, that that, that is my I, I just so. I don't know if their opinion deserves a platform here. They have constituents. They have. And so what I think my job and our job is, in fact, I was just having a, a longer meeting about about coverage going forward where we, we said to ourselves, we need to focus on who the 74 million people are and what they are he- hearing and listening. But it doesn't mean their views deserve equal airing, if that makes sense, when it's false views, right? When it's not that. But it is important to know, hey, that representative has a constituency that 70% thinks is QAnon, right? Or some something like that. So I don't think, I think they have lost their ability to be taken seriously in, in, in policy debates, right? I, I, I think that that, to me, what they did here, they propagate, especially I, I, I don't of the 140, if we put them in a lie detector test, how many of them do you think actually believes what they said about the election? About I'm, I do think maybe five or six. What do you think? Yeah, I would say both. Yeah, I, but I actually, and Bobert and yeah, I think Bosar believes it. Right. I do. Absolutely. I mean, right, I think it's I think, a little bit bigger than what you're giving credit for, actually, with the with right. the, I'm with hopeful the that it's just five or six. With the House yeah. freshman. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a low end is is I could I think it could be many more than that. But, you know, not not 100, you know, not 100. Right. And so to me, if you knowingly are that cynical and you've knowingly done this, then how can I trust anything you say to me about what your position is on trade? Right. Or what your position is on immigration. So I do think I do think reporters, you know, look and I've you know, I'll I'll tell you a a debate we have all the time, which is sort of like, okay, how much perspective from the Trump point of view should be on Sunday morning? Right. On one hand, there's 70 more four million people. On the other hand, it's not a factual basis. You know, they're not arguing a point on a factual basis. Like I had a member of Congress on hey, today. You can't even Tom say they're Reed. conservatives, right? They're not even yeah, conservative. conservative. If they do Please, that away right. when they're right. supporting Trump. Look, there's a reason David French is doing what he's doing right now, right? He's not, he, he feels as if, hey, I thought I was a conservative. Steve Hayes, those guys, they thought they actually were getting into journalism 
that from a conservative perspective, but they actually believed it in an ideological way. And they found out they were, they were in the minority. Right. So I think ultimately I almost don't want to, I don't want to make this about whether you put Trump people on or not. I think we have to be realistic in what is the actual debate we shouldn't let. And I think one of the mistakes that, that the media has done over the years, and I think frankly, the Democrats have done as well is they let the Republicans frame the arguments yeah. quite a bit on various policy debates, particularly on immigration and healthcare. And it, it is one of those things that I think that our job is to say, okay, this policy initiative, its goal is to do what? Okay, if it's a, to expand the coverage of healthcare. All right, are there three or four different ways to do it? Fine, let's get people that are representative of those three or four ways to do it. One person might have a mark, might believe you do it all in the private sector and here's a market-based idea to do it. Okay, fine. You know, one person says, no, no, it's all Medicare for all. Let's stop this. You know, I do think, and this is something that I'm making this, I'm saying it here, hold me to it in a year, but I want to tackle, I want to get back to tackling issues that way, which is, it's not about whether there's a left or a right. Is there multiple ways to solve this problem? And if there is, well, then let's hear the multiple ways try to get out of the left, right, red, blue paradigm. Now it's hard because of how, frankly, how close the current, our current politics is, right? How narrow the house is, how narrow the Senate is. So it's not as if it doesn't animate or, or certainly doesn't inform. Yeah, process, some of the process is yeah. going to be important when you yes. don't have a market. And so, you know, I'm mindful of that, but I, I do think if all of us frame, go at, go at policy debates that way, in some ways, there won't be many of the Trump insurrectionists that'll be worth your time anyway, if that makes yeah. sense. I will say that the frame you're looking through seems reasonable to, enough to me in a Biden administration. It wouldn't work in a yeah. Trump administration no, because work. Yeah. Of, the, of the just constant spew no of policy. disinformation, right? It was just a, just a miasma of disinformation just all the time. Yeah. But but in a Biden administration, you could legitimately do what you're doing. And I think it would be you could get away a little bit from this is what the left says. This is what the right says. It, you know, because well, there's going to be factual basis. There's going to be two. And not only that, there's, I mean, you know, there are going to be competing left of center um, ideas. Oh, to solve oh we know that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, in some way, I mean, and, and, you know, look, I actually have this theory that if we broke up both parties in half and created four major parties in this country, we might have a healthier political system right now. And you might actually, if everybody knew that you had to make a coalition to attain power, then you would actually be more open to coalitions to enact, you know, into, into, you know, but, you know, it, it you know, but look, we're, we're, we're a country that's going to get stuck in this two party system, whether we like it or not. I, 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 and I, I, I know that, but there is a part of me that thinks on policy. I, I, I wish sometimes we were divided into four because then you, you, you might have a more honest discussion. So I, I, the insurrectionists are, are almost like the easy question, right? It's how do you handle the insurrectionists? Well, we, we, we ostracize them. They are literally insurrectionists. What about the, the more nuanced, subtle sort the of enablers? <laughs> right? well, definitely the enablers. But they're 
yeah, that's that's a whole even conversation. But I'm just talking about people who just flat out pretend they didn't say what they said they did. You know, just flat out lie. And, and there's I there's definitely more of a culture of fact checking now than there was four years ago. And I actually think that's something that I hope really continues moving forward, even if it's my side being. Uh, impacted. Sure. And I say that because I'm, I know for a fact that my side is not going to be the most impacted by fact checking. But is that something that, that at least institutionally at, at NBC, at MSNBC, is that mm -hmm. something that, that you plan on continuing is to be uh, aggressive I, in challenging uh, facts? Yeah, or, you know, I, I go, I take it, I'll take it another step, Marcos. You know, one of the things, and, and frankly, I'll admit sometimes it's a coping mechanism, but you know, one of the things that I think members of the press ought to remember is we're not here to be popular, right? We shouldn't try to be popular. I, I go back to one of my favorite pieces of journalism advice actually comes from the movie Almost Famous, right? Philip Seymour Hoffman tells the kid, don't be friends with the rock stars. The mm -hmm. rock stars are not your friends, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like everybody who plays access journalism on Capitol Hill, no matter how good that source is, someday that source is going to come, you're going to have, you're going to, your integrity is going to get challenged because Absolutely. that source is going to want payback, right? It, it is, Absolutely. look, it's, it's the, it's, it's the challenge of being a journalist, right? You got to know, boy, all right, these sources, you know, can we have a dispassionate relationship and still have a trustworthy source? Or are you going to, are you going to let that go? I got a lot more comfortable, I'll be flat on honest, when I sort of said, look, people are going to get angry with me. That's okay. You know, it, it, people are angry with angry sometimes at the messenger. I got to accept it. If you worry about it too much, then you will, you will start to almost cater to the critics too much, right? In that you're trying to, you know, if that's all you're hearing. And so I think if we sort of keep this attitude, like, I, look, just before Trump took office, I had already decided not to go to Washington dinners anymore. I've always thought the look of us in tuxedos while America's suffering in some form or another, you know, and it's us hobnobbing and all this stuff. And it was really uncomfortable. And I understood why so many people, whether it's you guys or viewers or anybody else would say, God, you guys are all too cozy. And the answer is yes, that's a hundred percent true. And what the Trump era did was make it a lot easier to dis basically disengage from social <laughs> From social you gotta stay that way, though, right? That's a challenge. Got to stay that way. Yes, Biden. It's everybody likes Biden. It's, everybody it's likes Biden. Jesus, I got you know both of my kids. You know, they asked me permission. It was really cute. But both of my kids, when he used to throw these press parties during the summer, when he was vice president, and I brought my kids, and you know what Joe Biden did? He played squirt guns with my kids when, <laughs> and everybody's kids. This is what he did, right? This is Joe Biden. It's why he's ever he's America's grandpa. It, it's and they have these great photos with him. And so when he won the election, my daughter's like, can I post this on Instagram? I'm like, go, oh, you know, it's not about me. It's like, you know, this is your, you know, you're 16 now, you're a, you're, you're a person. It's, it, you know, I got no issue with it. And so there's no doubt. And, and I don't, here's the thing. I think we all want to get along with the people we have to work with every day, whether they're people in our business or the people you cover, because we all want to, we all want a normal society. Right. And but I will say this, I think this reset that Trump gave us, I hope it's something we sort of keep for a while as much as it's going to be tempting to reengage socially. You know, I think it would be healthier if we kept some dispassionate distance in the long run 
it will only help our credibility in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I, early on in my, in my career, and, and obviously I, um, I, you know, we're a liberal outlet, but there's a lot of pr- pressure for me to move to DC to be closer to all the sources and, and the, and the sure. gossip. And, and I resisted that because it's a lot easier for me to criticize Democrats out in California when I don't have to run into them anywhere. <laughs> Cause I hey man, the, the more you and I have gotten to know each other, the harder it is for you and I to criticize each other. Right. I mean, I say this, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 it, it's human nature. There's it, it, absolutely look, I'm somebody who thinks I know there's an expiration date. I believe I have a, an expiration date in my job sooner than maybe other people do because I don't want to get comfortable and I want people to get comfortable. I think I'm a believer in beat rotations. I'm a believer in all of those things at a newsroom because you actually don't want too much. You want, I want expertise, but not social familiarity. Mm. If that makes sense. sense. It, it does make sense. And I, yeah, I mean, that was something I always fought with in Washington was not getting too, you know, my, in fact, I had less trouble with, am I getting too chubby, chummy with the, am I getting too chubby? No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Am I getting too chummy with the, uh, with the lawmakers yeah. and more am I getting, cause I was covering LGBTQ, uh, you know, issues mm-hmm. specifically, am I too chummy with the advocates? Um, the people who are supposedly right. supposed to be pushing the lawmakers, pushing the white house. Um, I actually never ended up getting very chummy with them because I was constantly so critical of them. They hated me. So never um, enough, right? Yeah, never yeah. enough. But I, I was, you know, I, I struggled with not being, too close, not being seen as too close. And I remember when I moved there, I was offered by the Obama White House a chance to go through, you know, and take a tour of the White House. And I said, are other media doing it? Because I'll do it if, if it's a media tour of the White House so that I can see yeah. what the White House is like, then good, I'll do it. But if it's just LGBTQ, you know, journalists gets, I'm not yeah. doing it. So I never did it. So uh, by the way, I, the, the hardest invite that I turned down from the Obama White House, but it was for the same reason is they did, you know, Obama decided to uh, apparently the 72 Miami Dolphins. I grew up in Miami. The 72 Miami Dolphins never got a White House visit. So anyway, they invited. They said, hey, do you want to be on the other side of the rope? Essentially. Yeah. Right. There's always a press rope. And I said, personally, yes. But I thought professionally it was just wrong and you know so i didn't do it and you know i I got my autographs the way every other member of the press corps had to do it type of thing but it it is one of those things that we're all human beings we all have our own interests we all have our own and now that said i i am a believer in the the old axiom in journalism that i think we don't do enough of in political journalism which is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable right Mm -hmm. And, and in that sense i think we've got to be advocates for for certain groups of people, even as if we're not advocates for individuals, if that makes sense. So, Chuck, we're almost out of time here. So I want to give you a chance to talk about the coverage that you will be helping um, take part of tomorrow. On, yep. I think MSNBC or NBC proper. I'm on the NBC side for tomorrow. Um, you know, I go back and forth. But tomorrow so, I'm on the NBC <clears throat> side and MS is doing Doing so their side you'll, have, and you'll have team wall-to-wall coverage of Donald Trump's mm-hmm. military send-off? You know what? No. And it's actually, <laughs> we've had an answer. No, no, the answer, look, I do not believe this has been another difficult conversation every media executive and journalist has had. Oh, that was a I, difficult conversation? Oh, yeah. Because, no, in this respect, there is this, well, he's the president. 
right? There is always this, well, he's the president. And I do think everybody has gotten to the place of you can't put him on live television. That's irresponsible. So, you know, I believe that our stance on this is we're going to cover it. We're going to air what we think is newsworthy to the viewers. And but he is not getting live access to any platform. Good, good, good. And, and then more seriously, if you want to talk about, about what you will be covering, um, it starts early, right? It starts. We start at seven. I mean, it's all the, you know, it's funny. It's like I, the, the, Mark, I'm curious what we will be covering because there isn't the, you know, you're not going to have, I mean, we're going to have the White House usher greet the Bidens at the White House, right? There's going to be, you know, it'll be interesting. It's going to be an all day reminder of how classless Donald Trump is. I'm okay with that. That seems fitting. But it, it, because every moment we're going to have to know, you know, we're going to be like, oh, and here's the traditional, well, no, no president. Here's the, tr- no, no president Trump. It will be a serial reminder all day of just how un-American he's acting. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. It is, it is we have a lot of fights in this country about politics and polarization, but there, we all thought there was some agreement on the story of America. Um, this is yeah. the first president where there wasn't. And, and, and in that sense, I think it'll be a constant reminder of how, of how much, how unusual, and frankly, hopefully an outlier this four years was. So you can catch Chuck Todd tomorrow on NBC News covering the inaugural. You can also catch him on weekends on Meet the Press and daily on Meet the Press Daily. Uh, do you sleep? Do you? Uh, Monday's my weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks. Yep. Mark, Good to see you. I, I love like- I love the all, tomorrow will be an all day reminder of how classless Donald Trump is. Yeah, it's that's actually I mean, it, it's true that there it's it's a dawn of a new day. There's going to be we're going to be talking about all the executive orders and all the legislation introduced in the new Democratic Congress. And there's a lot to look forward to. But that is that true. Like you said, that is a very fitting send off for the most classless individual probably in this entire country. Bar none. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they wouldn't be talking about it if he had done something classy, like do the do the norm, show up, you know, greet Jill and, and Joe Biden at the uh, White House and, you know, attend the inauguration. Hard. If he right, it wasn't hard. hard, it wouldn't be hard. He could then he could have. Obama did it to Trump. I know. I know. Every, every president has done That's it. Hard. Every president except him. So yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I also like this this notion of, of of blacklisting the insurrectionists, and even you know we didn't get too far into it, but also talking about the people who enabled that as well. I mean, I think that's going to be an important part of sort of purging American society of these seditionists and getting back to what he called about the shared story of America, which yeah. really, I mean, it, it what what blows me away is that. Uh, we, uh, you know, Daily Coast existed when John McCain ran for president, when Mitt Romney ran for president, and they were like the enemy, right? Like, holy crap, we got to do everything we can to win these elections. And now we're like on the same side and we shouldn't be on the same side. We should be able to battle these, these uh, have these ideological battles over ideas and what role does government have in making people's lives better, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we can't even have those arguments anymore because now we're arguing over basic democracy. Right. 
There's a couple of things I just want to say real quick, which is I I think part of what Trump did was not only did he not believe in the shared story of America, he helped he helped us uncover the fact for those of us who sit in slightly more comfortable positions, in particular being white. Right. Um, Or for me personally. Right. Uh, Is is that the shared story of America is actually much more brutal than we think it is. It's actually been much more difficult for a lot of people than we think it has been. And so it's been nice to have this sort of, for some of us, it's been a privilege to have this sort of glossy shared story of America. Oh, I've I've finally done it. I I ticked Marcos off and he's out of here. No, just kidding. So um, (laughs) disappeared from screen for a second. Anyway, it's been, you know, it's been a privilege for some of us to have this sort of glossy vision of of what America is. But what Trump exposed is what America really is, which is not all that great. I mean, you know, sure, we have great potential. We've done some great things. The nation has moved in very positive directions in a lot, you know, over the years to become, as Obama always talked about, you know, a more perfect union, as was intended. But, you know, there's a there's a lot of seedy underbelly there. There's a lot of dark corners and That's 72 million. Right. That that was the, the biggest sort of 74, 74 million. Yeah, that part. And it was more. Right. It was what, 13 million more people than voted for Trump last time. So people who saw four years of Trump and said, yeah, I want more of that. Yeah. That is the problem. So this whole idea, that's not who we are. It is exactly who we are. The question is, can we be better? Can we be better? And it is worth knowing what's underneath there in order to be better. I mean, sometimes you got to take a a stark look in the mirror um, before you can actually before you can actually be best, as Milani would say. Carrie, I want to get to to Dave Newer, but there's a question from Facebook from Joseph uh, Maldry Chuck, who asks, can you name anyone associated with the Trump administration whose reputation has not been tarnished? And I would say somebody who was appointed by Trump. So we, the easy answer is Fossey, right? But no, he, he was there already. So is there anybody appointed by Trump whose reputation I'm, has not been tarnished? I'm literally, I'm literally searching for anyone I can think of who got anywhere close to Trump. And I'm not even just thinking appointees, but and wasn't just ruined by it. You know, I mean... Is there anyone whose profile got raised? I mean, I think maybe you could say that someone who was already like did not have a good, a great reputation, except among white supremacists, someone like Stephen Miller, you know, I guess after after he leaves the White House, you know, after tomorrow. Right. When he's I mean, he was already so sort of egregious as a person that like. He, maybe within the white supremacy circles, he gained, you know, it's not like there was a reputation to tarnish. So maybe he, ga- no. he gained like John, John Bolton, you know, he quit, but he was oh, already no. a horrible person. I mean, I'm, I'm actually having a really hard time. Maybe Haskell at the CIA? Uh, yeah, I, I think, yes. I mean, I... I I don't know what her. She didn't record. go along with. She didn't go along with trying to steal the election. She, in fact, she, she challenged Trump. As far as we, yep. we know, as far as we can tell. I mean, you know, I think there's yeah. a lot of lefties who would say Haspel isn't, you know, isn't their their most, you know, flowery picture of a person. Anyways, well, but, nobody you know, is. <laughs> she's she's head of the CIA. So, but no, I think you're right. She pushed back, and I also think she wasn't. I don't know that she was his top pick. You know, I think they needed someone. And I do think I do think Senate Republicans probably strong armed him a little bit into doing something relatively normal there because 
it wasn't going to work to have it, it wasn't an acting person. Yeah. Uh, which is who we would have wanted. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's bring on our second guest for the show. He is Dave Newer. He is a writer at Daily Coast, but he's also one of the foremost national experts on the white supremacist hate movement. And David, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. It's good to see you guys. How are you doing? Yeah, good to see you too. Yeah, so, yeah, we're all so, surviving. So I guess my big question, and I, I know uh, Carrie has her own, my, my big question is, have the arrest of the last few days, right? There's insurrection. The This sort of hate movement was so intertwined in that. Like all the big names were participants, as far as I know. Uh, you could probably tell us better. But um, now a lot of them are starting to get arrested, like the Oath Keepers leadership. How much of this is actually going to hamper them moving forward? Is it going to at least slow them down? Or are they still a clear and present danger uh, today, tomorrow at the inauguration and in the immediate future? Yeah, I, I think they're going to continue to be a danger. It's uh, obviously the uh, <laughs> the the arrests have had a pretty powerful effect in tamping down the uh, a lot of their activism. I mean, the supposed million militia march that was going to supposed to take place this weekend was just a total uh, a fail, fail with a capital F. You know, like one zero. <laughs> uh, I, well, yeah. I mean, nobody showed up in Washington, as far as we can tell, and. And there were just handfuls at these state capitals. And so, yeah, I think that it was a combination of the arrests and also just, I think, the general response to the insurrection, the, the, the way the nation sort of reeled back in horror and everybody. And suddenly these guys are like, oh, that, that Nazi and what movie was it? He says, uh, are we the bad guys? <laughs> you know? I think it actually surprised them. Because they expected the military to join them and the police. Yeah, well, their whole conception of themselves, and uh, this is a lot of why they were attacking uh, police officers who were stopping them from entering the Capitol, is is fundamentally heroic. I mean, they see themselves as saving the the republic from these uh, nefarious communists, uh, Chinese communists that are trying to take us over. I mean, that's literally what... Uh, Stuart Rhodes, the, the leader of the Oath Keepers, is telling people on December 15th. And that, you know, not only that, that but they are, um, you know, they're saving, the, they're defending the Constitution. You know, that's that's why they call themselves Oath Keepers. They're keeping the oath to defend the uh, Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic, right? And you heard them actually say that as they were entering the Capitol. Well, they were um, in some of those videos that we saw. Um, I think somebody did it, said it right in that New Yorker video that recently came out. Yeah. And it was to me that was just that's exactly that's the right wing extremists that I've known for thirty years. They all see themselves as heroes. The self conception of, of heroism is really fundamental to them, and. That's why, you know, so much of their enterprise revolves around engendering enemies because you can't be heroic without, you can't be a hero without an enemy. And so this is why they sort of invented the, the deep and dark nefarious threat of Antifa and, and Black Lives Matter and all this. And, and oh, they're, they're actually secretly communists, right? And this was, this is what was in all their heads when they entered the Capitol uh, on January 6th. 
Can I just ask then? So I I buy into them, of course. I mean, I'm not doubting what you're saying, but I buy into them being you know full of this perception of their of self heroism, right? Right. But, but did they really think they were going to be universally sort of well received? You know that like the nation was going to be oh thank God yeah. you know they stormed the Capitol, took it over, yeah. and took back America. They thought that would be broadly popular. What you're um, absolutely. Well, I mean, this is really kind of a fundamental component of right wing authoritarian personalities that, uh, you know, there are basically three what we call attitudinal and behavioral clusters that comprise right wing authoritarianism. The first is authoritarian submission to the to the great leader. Right. And the second is authoritarian aggression uh, directed against anyone who doesn't submit. And the third and maybe most important component is uh, conventionalism. They believe that they represent the real America. And they believe that there are millions of people out there and that the silent majority quietly supports them. And yeah, no, that's very much, they certainly believe that the cops were on their side. And this is something really endemic to uh, the Proud Boys in particular, because they did a lot of back of the blue stuff during the, uh, during the uh, protests this summer and were, have been, you know, they, when I covered all these events in Portland and Seattle and other places where Proud Boys were marching, um, they were always, you know, real buddy buddy with the cops. We even saw, I think, in one of the Portland events, uh, you know, the, the Oath Keepers helping to arrest an anti-fascist demonstrator who they held for the police, and the police were thankful for their help. You know, and this was the kind of stuff that people who were reporting on this were seeing all along that the cops actually were taking the side of these Proud Boys as long as there were leftists out there in the streets to you know oppose them but as soon as it was just the proud boys and the cops it became a very different scene because suddenly they're breaking it became very apparent to the cops that hey one oh, there there's not two both sides breaking the law here there's only one side breaking the law and our job is to stop it let me ask something so that's a little off the beaten path it occurred to me which is, you know, now now that the, a lot of the right wingers have been sort of deplatformed by a bunch of these, you know, tech companies. What do you? I, I, I mean, I would argue that it's decreased. It, in fact, there's already been studies that even just taking Trump off has decreased the amount of disinformation on the internet. Of course, the downside. I mean, and I I think that that is very valuable is to just not have so much disinformation at one's fingertips all the time right. that if you really want to go down that rabbit hole, you actually have to search for the rabbit hole. Right. right. So, uh, but you know what the, the downside of this of course, is that law enforcement agencies have had to work harder. Now I've just seen these reports, these headlines where it's harder for law enforcement now to sort of keep track of these right wing groups. And it's going to, it's going to get harder mm -hmm. because they've been pushed more into the, into the dark corners. Right. Yeah. And I, I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. I mean, is it is it a worthwhile trade off to have less disinformation, but have law enforcement have to work harder? And do you think there are implications? Yeah. I, in fact, I wrote a post about this for Daily Coast. <laughs> um, that's quite all right. But uh, folks can go back and, and take a, a look. Um, the yeah, I, I think that. Um, deplatforming is a useful tool, but it's a blunt instrument. 
that can be useful for particularly turning off the spigot of disinformation and misinformation that flows from uh, these cesspits, including Donald Trump's account. And, And that really is a good thing because, as you mentioned, there's certainly powerful indications that uh, just shutting off that account had a had a significant effect although um that study was a little problematic because it didn't actually uh take into account the fact that these platforms had not just shut down Donald Trump they did so booted off something like 70,000 different accounts uh that were spewing this stuff they're they're little baby trumps they're trump juniors yeah 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 and and but and they were a significant part of that you know 73 percent of disinformation that disappeared so but overall yeah that's absolutely a good thing and and removing all those voices was a good thing Uh, and really was long overdue in fact facebook still is in fact that's the post I'm writing for Coast today that I need to get to Barb before too long because I'm kind of running behind. But yeah, Facebook is still refusing to to take any culpability for the significant role that it played in in providing a platform for these people to uh, recruit and radicalize and organize this insurrection because a lot of the organizing that went on prior to the event was taking place on Facebook. And yet Sheryl Sandberg comes on uh, Reuters the other day and says, oh, well, I think most of the organizing was actually taking place on these smaller platforms like Telegram. And it's like, eh, eh, no, 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 <laughs> actually – those places came later after the insurrection because that's where everybody has fled to. But they were taking place on your platform, lady, and you need to take ownership of it. And that's part of the problem is that nobody does want to really take ownership of this stuff uh, because they don't uh, they don't want to take you know yeah, recognize their larger responsibility, potential legal liability as, as well as yeah. moral li- liability. But I mean, you've been covering this the far right movement for what thirty years or so, right? Yeah. That was before there was Facebook, before there was Twitter, before there was even <laughs> yeah. the internet, right? So yeah. turning off the internet on these people, which is impossible because they're going to find their corners of the dark web to do their to their thing, but right. Uh, it does limit that growth potential, but they still have the ability to exist because they did before True the internet. Nice. Yeah. And that was the point of my post uh, that I wrote for Coast was that, you know, it's, it's a blunt instrument. It's, it's useful, but it, it does, it's not a substitute for the very hard work of actually going after and, and uh, confronting this problem head on. That's a, my next question, though, because Obama administration, right at the beginning, they actually tried to do something about the, the growing right wing threat and Republicans flipped out, right? It, because they said mm-hmm. military. Because some of them were ex-military. And that was the excuse they did, right? They're disrespecting right. our troops. Yeah. Clearly, they're not going to be able to say crap this time around. <laughs> so, yeah, so no, is, no. Is this really the first real concerted effort that we're going to see to try to dismantle those militias? Yeah, well, one can hope. I mean, is as I wrote for Coast the other day, it's actually illegal in all 50 states for there to be these private armies. They are actually against the law. There are laws on the books in every state in the union that prohibit uh, private vigilante armies. These laws date back to mostly the turn of the 20th century when 
they were mostly a response to robber barons sending in private armies of armed thugs, Pinkertons, and people like that to attack labor organizers. But they are there, they exist, and they actually have a perfectly good founding, which is that these vigilante militias are accountable to no one. Uh, and this is that is not anything the framers ever had in mind. The, a lot of the way they get away with what they do is that they've buffaloed everybody with a lot of Second Amendment bullshit. <laughs> saying uh, that, that has kind of, you know, uh, hornswoggled people into thinking, oh, the Second Amendment protects the existence of these militias. It does not. And so the, pr the problem is, and, and I actually wrote to Bob Ferguson, the uh, Attorney General of Washington State, because Washington has some very robust uh, anti-militia laws on the books. And I said, Bob, is there a reason that you cannot uh, or can't or won't do uh, take an, the initiative of prosecuting and, and, and outlawing these vigilante militias? And he said, they replied to me that, uh, unfortunately, in Washington state, and it's probably the case in many other states, the attorney general doesn't actually have primary purview over yeah jurisdiction in those cases and so it's actually up actually up to the law enforcement agencies to enforce these laws so one of the things i mean there's been a lot of talk about you know getting uh, the, for the biden administration to confront this white supremacist issue by you know passing federal laws that i don't think are actually going to make a dime's worth of difference or worse yet more frighteningly getting the CIA involved. Uh, yeah, that's a really bad idea. And then finally there are, uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, having a 9-11 style commission to examine the problem. And I think that that, that might, could be helpful if it actually is serious and I'm not sure it would be. What you're saying then is that, that you have, County sheriffs are, have that jurisdiction then. And state police, state and police officers. These county sheriffs are probably out yeah. in rural areas where the militias are, right? So they might yeah. even be one and the same. Uh, in, yeah, certain cases, uh, particularly if your sheriff is a CSPOA sheriff, uh, then yes. Uh, you, have, you have somebody who's working hand in glove with the militias. Wait, wait, what kind of sheriff? An outfit called CSPOA, the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, is run by Richard Mack. Uh, they they are uh, aligned with the Bundy type patriots. Oh. Uh, they they preach that the sheriff is the supreme law of the land and that he can overrule federal laws in his county and and so ignore the, ignore the presence of FBI agents. I mean, that tells me federal response is the only real solution then. Well, uh, I, I think that they're actually there. I think it's actually could be part of an opportunity of a larger initiative uh, to reform police enforcement across the country. I think that um, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to actually enforce. I mean, it's really a pretty simple solution. We could just enforce the laws that are on the books. It's already against the law to threaten to assassinate a federal uh, official. It's against the law to threaten to hang the president of the United States. And it's against the law to share book or bomb making plans on with with your pals on the Internet.
And yeah. all this stuff has been going, all this kind of stuff has been going on, not just during Trump's years, but really I, I've been seeing it happen for the last 30 years. And but, the yeah. cops, it is not, these laws are not enforced. And so, so yes, there has to be a robust federal response to actually enforce the laws that are on the books. But there also needs to be an initiative to, I think, reform policing in America in a way that, first of all, we get rid of the white supremacists who are in our police departments. And secondly, we uh, encourage and train police departments. We provide the money for the training if we need to, and we probably should, for hate crimes training, which is a huge gap that's part of this picture. And, you know, just reshape American law enforcement so that it actually takes this stuff seriously. My, my very loose understanding, and this is just honest, honestly, I haven't done a ton of research, was that part of the problem with federally charging these folks is that is that they, you, 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 it, it, the laws that you say exist on the books doesn't doesn't allow you to ha- go after sort of the whole group and dismantle the whole group. Right. right, it, right. It, it just allows you to go after the one person or the few people who are associated with that particular threat. And, right. and I, I, I've heard arguments that that really could help enable federal enforcement if they had a law that allowed them to more broadly address these issues rather than just sort of this whack-a-mole situation. I don't know if you agree with that. I, I think that, uh, and actually, I've, for a, a period, I was pretty sympathetic to the the laws. I mean, let's be clear. Right now, it's not possible. There is not a federal law against uh, domestic terrorism. Right. Uh, and um, we, you know, and this is a this was a gap that was built into the Patriot Act, and it probably should be addressed. But I don't want to see it addressed in some half-assed way either, because if you write it vaguely enough, then a law like that is going to be. It'll be used against Black Lives Matter. The next time there is a Trump, uh, we're going to be seeing somebody, seeing him get away with declaring Antifa and Black Lives Matter terrorist organizations. So you you don't want to be you if you're going to do that kind of law, you better be sure you've got the safeguards in there that don't let it be used, particularly as we've seen historically from the federal government, particularly the FBI, uh, against uh, communities of color and uh, immigrant communities. Uh, those are uh, that's the way typically we've seen these kind of laws get used. Uh, there's travesties, of course, their, their original intent, but that's what I fear would happen with this kind of law. And so, I mean, yeah, we could talk about it, but you better do it right. So, Dave Newart, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Dave Newart, I keep putting Newart. That's quite all right. <laughs> um, you can catch Everybody gets the wrong, Marcos. It's not a big deal. Uh, yeah, but I've only known you about 20 years, right? Did <laughs> <laughs> hey, you see the, the crack in me my posted? For uh, <laughs> so, um, you can catch David's work on Daily Coast. You could also just, just put his name into Amazon search bar, and he's written, what, a a couple nine dozen books. books nine books nine books on on sort of the hate movement over the years oh, eight, eight uh, books on the hate movement and one book about orcas <laughs> <laughs> david it's such a pleasure thank you so much hey, likewise guys man I, I i just always one of these days i think i may go back and i may try to see who were the republicans who who scream bloody murder when obama 
when the Obama administration proposed this task force to look into right-wing violence because there's there's a lot of blood in every, a lot of people's hands. And, and, you know, Chuck Todd actually brought up the assassination attempt on Gabby Giffords as a beginning. And there's been so many in the years mm-hmm. that I, it's, it's lost in the clutter, right? I, I was like, oh, yeah. Right, uh, right. Yeah, right. sort of did. I don't, I mean, I disagree that that was the beginning. As, as David pointed out, he's been covering this for about 30 years. This has been an ongoing threat. But it was sort of an escalation, right? It was, it was actual political violence. So the kind that you don't see in this country. And it sort of shattered one of those, those norms and uh, sort of presaged all the norms that would be shattered. So um, it, it's, it's, I'm afraid of what the future holds when it comes to this political violence. I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Yeah. I mean, to, to your point though, and you know, I don't know that I don't have the the faintest idea of the best way to go about this, but to your point, the, uh, like with many things, the Biden administration has an opportunity to address this now because every Republican who comes out and says, oh, that's a terrible idea. If you, you know, if you if you target right wing extremists, you know, they don't have a leg to stand on. Right. So so it does pro- it does provide this opportunity in this moment to actually go after it rather concretely and, you know, and, and be pretty bold about it. And any pushback you get that person, you know, just, they, they don't, sorry, we're not, we're not, you know, seeding the conversation to you because this, this, this posture is exactly what got us to the insurrection at the Capitol. So you may support that, but the rest of us don't. There will be a lot of what about isms though. What about black lives matter as though stealing a TV at target, uh, you know what? Somehow I, analogous. No, let me just say, okay, great. Black Lives Matter didn't storm the Capitol and murder people. Simply. That, that's that so, simple. So go ahead, go ahead with that whataboutism because that is such a pile of bullshit. I'm sorry, but like, you know, that I mean, there is no there is no comparison now to what the right wing extremists did. And, you know, when people send pipe bombs and when you know it's not the black we don't we don't see i'm not saying you know no bad behavior pops up here and there you know there's always people looking to capitalize on a moment when there's protests you know when everybody leaves and you know there's always people looking to capitalize on that moment to do some damage to something or whatever but but nothing even close to what trump's cultists did nothing even close And the irony is that if anybody had an actual grievance in this country, it is people that are that are fighting for the lives of black Americans. Carrie, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining me. This was an incredible show. Thanks to Chuck Todd uh, and Dave Nywert, our guest. Also, thank you to Walter Einenkel for producing this show. See you guys at 1.30 Pacific, uh, 4.30 Eastern every Tuesday. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope to see you next week. Bye bye. Thank you.